This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Crosswalk Buttons. Do you wish you could press a button and have nothing happen? Try Crosswalk Buttons today. Welcome to episode 62 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. It is Friday, October 22nd. You can subscribe to The Sweaty Penguin on Apple, Spotify, Google, Podcast Addict, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star rating and a review, and you will get a shout-out at the end of the show. The other way to get a shout-out? Join our Patreon. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll also get access to some Sweaty Penguin swag, exclusive bonus content, and more, including an extended cut of today's episode. You can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Today, we are talking about nuclear energy, the one field of work where your goal should not be to get exposure. I'll let you think about that one for a minute. Nuclear energy is one of the more well-known environmental topics here in the U.S., and I know from personal experience that a lot of people love nuclear, and a lot of people hate nuclear. But as many of you may have guessed, it's really not as simple as nuclear good or nuclear bad. There's real pros, there's real cons, and there's real misconceptions about what those pros and cons are. Take Three Mile Island, the nuclear meltdown near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, on March 28, 1979. Three Mile Island made the front page of the New York Times and Time magazine, consumed almost 40% of evening news during the week following the accident, and is still today widely thought of as one of the worst nuclear disasters of all time. But did you know that there were no deaths, no injuries, and no adverse health effects as a result of Three Mile Island? Did you know that the people living nearby experienced just a one millirem increase in radiation, which for context is about a sixth of the radiation received during a routine chest x-ray? While it's always cause for concern when someone says oops at a nuclear plant, Three Mile Island was completely misunderstood from the get-go, and there's a reason. The nuclear engineers and federal energy officials weren't the most eloquent public speakers, surprise, surprise, and the reporters covering the disaster were extremely on edge because just 12 days before Three Mile Island, a movie called The China Syndrome had just come out. Starring Jack Lemmon, Jane Fonda, and Michael Douglas, The China Syndrome tells the story of a reporter discovering a cover-up of safety hazards at a nuclear power plant. And according to the movie's screenwriter Mike Gray, the movie played a pretty major role in the reporting on Three Mile Island. At one of the major New York dailies, the managing editor stood up on his desk and shouted, Who here has seen the China Syndrome? Three guys raised their hand. He said, You, 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 you're going to Harrisburg. So the movie then became a briefing film for the press. 
And if you're a reporter, and you see a movie about a reporter uncovering a hidden, looming, potentially world-ending nuclear disaster, and then within two weeks get sent to a press conference at a nuclear disaster, led by an engineer who hadn't spoken in front of that many people since winning his college's chess club championship, you're probably going to think you're living out the movie. And for the screenwriter of the film to call it a briefing film for the press, it's pretty clear that this wasn't just one or two random cases. Obviously, it's job one for reporters to do their due diligence and get the truth, but for a big-time managing editor to handpick the reporters that probably thought the world was about to end and send a mob of them after a socially awkward engineer demanding answers may, in retrospect, not have been the best way to do it. As such, it's understandable why Three Mile Island prompted so much fear and distrust about nuclear energy in the United States, and why it remains one of the commonly cited nuclear disasters in this country despite causing no deaths or injuries. But why does it matter if we're exaggerating a disaster from 1979? Well, it's really important to have a good grasp on the drawbacks of nuclear energy, because if we look in the pros column, there's some big ones. Almost 20% of U.S. electricity comes from just 93 nuclear power plants, a tiny amount of land as compared to any fossil fuel or renewable energy source. Nuclear energy doesn't require sunlight or wind or any other natural phenomena to work, unless, of course, the weather forecast is cloudy with a chance of vanishing all the uranium. And perhaps most significantly, Nuclear energy has no carbon emissions, making it just as climate-friendly as solar or wind or hydro or geothermal or any other clean energy. We might not see nuclear as the energy source that would have the plant mom car magnet or a billion Instagram photos of lattes with oat milk, but in reality, its carbon footprint is on par with every other form of renewable energy. With benefits like these, and especially given how pressing climate change is, it's absolutely worth looking into nuclear energy further. So today, we'll explore what issues face nuclear energy, to what extent they really are issues, and if we can fix these issues enough to make nuclear energy a good option for the future. But first, we need to explain how nuclear energy works, and to do that, we're going to have a quick class on chemistry. Nuclear energy is generated at the atomic level. Technically, there are two types of nuclear energy, fission and fusion. Hopefully in the near future, we'll have a third called fission, where Jeremy Wade just yells fission into an electrical outlet, but until then, it's just those two. We're going to skip fusion today, since humans can't actually do it unless we're in a laboratory or take a trip to the sun, and unfortunately, trips to the sun are not yet part of the Sweaty Penguin's exclusive Patreon perks. So instead, we'll talk about nuclear fission, where the nucleus, or the center part of the atom, splits into two or more smaller pieces, and this process creates energy. In a nuclear reactor, we do that using an isotope of uranium called uranium-235. The 235 is the total number of protons and neutrons in the uranium's nucleus. All uranium has 92 protons, so uranium-235 would have 143 neutrons. 
You don't need to remember those totals of protons and neutrons, though. The Sweaty Penguin's chemistry class has no exams or pop quizzes. Just remember that uranium-236 has one more neutron than uranium-235. 238 would have two more than 236, etc. Why do we need to know that? Well, uranium-235 can be found on Earth pretty easily, and uranium-236 is what we call fissile. It is capable of undergoing nuclear fission. So in a nuclear reactor, we basically fire a neutron at a uranium-235 atom to turn it into a uranium-236 atom. That causes a nuclear fission reaction. The uranium-236 splits into barium, krypton, a few leftover neutrons, and energy. Pretty cool, right? Firing a neutron at uranium-235 is like firing a how-was-your-week-at-me-in-therapy. It goes from totally chill to completely breaking down. We then harness that energy and let those neutrons go find another uranium-235 atom. Suddenly, neutrons and uranium-235 atoms are pairing off like it's cuffing season, nuclear fission reactions are going haywire, and we're producing a lot of energy. How do we harness that energy? There's two main ways. The most common type of nuclear reactor used in the US and worldwide is called a pressurized water reactor. This type of reactor has a core full of uranium. A large reactor might have 80 to 100 tons of uranium in the core. The uranium will be processed into pellets, which are stacked together in sealed metal tubes called fuel rods, and then more than 200 fuel rods will be bundled together to form what's called an assembly. A reactor core will likely contain a few hundred assemblies. So the reactor pumps water into the core under high pressure so that it doesn't boil which is an interesting approach. I think it would be easier to prevent the water from ever boiling by just staring at it with a box of Kraft mac and cheese in hand, but I guess they know better than I do. So after the fission reaction produces energy, that energy is turned to heat and transferred to that not boiling water. When the water heats up, it is pumped into heat exchanger tubes, which heat up different water to create steam, which then spins a turbine and generates electricity. That water used in the core then goes back to the beginning and is used again. The less common type of reactor is the boiling water reactor. Unlike the pressurized water reactor, which transfers the water elsewhere to generate steam, the boiling water reactor produces steam directly from the water in the core that is heated by the fuel rods, which goes directly from there to the turbines. So what issues arise in this process? First, there's some concerns with the process of mining the uranium. To be clear, uranium mining can be done completely safely, but if it's not done right, it can produce environmental and health risks, and in the past, it certainly has. Listen to Clee Benelli, a Navajo musician from Arizona. Share what it's like to live near old uranium mines. There is an abandoned uranium mine that is a looks like a hill. I mean, contaminated radioactive dirt looks like regular dirt. It's an invisible threat. Um, but there were toys, there were, from what I understand, there were uh, signs of children playing in this hill, and there were houses just right at the base of this. But one of these rocks, uh, when a Geiger counter was set on it, it went through the roof. And so these abandoned uranium mines look and, like the rest of the natural landscape. Many? 
There are an estimated over a thousand in our homelands. Radioactive dirt looks like regular dirt. It's like how decaf coffee looks like regular coffee, or how sociopaths look like normal people. Honestly, I don't think it's the worst idea to tell children to just not play in dirt, period, and avoid all the bath time arguments, but yeah, radioactive dirt is a lot worse than regular dirt. And for the Navajo Nation to have over a thousand of these inconspicuous hills in their homeland, as Klee says, is really scary. Who knows how many people, adults or kids, have been exposed to radioactive material. To be clear, this isn't The Simpsons. Although The Simpsons has predicted stuff accurately in the past, radioactive material definitely won't give you eight eyes or an infinite craving for donuts. But studies have shown higher rates of pneumoconiosis, tuberculosis, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and cancer in Navajo uranium mine workers. And if that's scary, let me tell you how we know that. In the 1950s, the U.S. government wanted to study the health impacts of uranium, so they planned to identify the level of radon in uranium mines and correlate that to the health of the respective workers. But the Navajo miners, many of whom did not speak English, were not informed of the fact that they'd be subjected to hazardous conditions for this study. An American Journal of Public Health study in 2000 found these Navajo workers were 28.6 times more likely to contract disease, with many of them dying. And not only were these workers put at extreme risk, but having not been informed of the hazards, many workers brought contaminated rocks with them to build their family homes, unknowingly exposing their loved ones as well. And again, None of this had to happen. We can mine uranium safely, certainly way more safely than mining coal. But in the Navajo Nation, where the old uranium mines were named a Superfund site in 1994 and still not cleaned up to this day, you can understand why people like Klee are really frustrated. Their very recent ancestors were deceived, harmed, and in some cases killed due to uranium mining, and the Navajo Nation is still living with these hazards to this day. After mining uranium and generating energy, there is of course the issue of nuclear waste, the uranium fuel rods that are no longer effective at generating electricity. This spent fuel is extremely hot, like Flynn Rider, and extremely toxic, like Flynn Rider. While radioactive waste eventually decays and becomes harmless, this process can take tens of thousands of years, and in the meantime, presents a major risk if anyone were to be exposed. So how much nuclear waste are we generating? Well, the US has about 80,000 metric tons of spent fuel waste sitting at plants across the country. That sounds like a lot. But keep in mind, this is all the nuclear waste we have generated in the history of nuclear energy, which dates back to 1958. Because this waste is so dense, 63 years of waste would fill the area of a football field at 20 feet deep. It sounds like a lot, but if you divide that by the area of the entire country, it does seem like a much smaller amount, especially when you consider that we can just put it all at the stadium for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Look, I love you, Trevor Lawrence, but it's time you guys move your team to London permanently and let your stadium live out its ultimate destiny. But until we put it all at the Jaguars stadium, where is our nuclear waste? 
Right now, the spent fuel is placed in pools at the power plant for a few years so they can cool and become a little less radioactive, and then is placed in steel canisters, which are welded shut and put inside of reinforced concrete silos. These exist at or near the power plants, and that is where the spent fuel remains. But while this silo system is fine in the short term, it was never intended to be the long-term solution. It's like the horse and buggy, or Circuit City. Experts debate how long these silos can remain safe, especially considering many are on coasts and a prominent one in California is on a fault line, and additionally, they cost a lot of money to maintain. So where could we permanently put our nuclear waste? Well, this becomes quite the debate, with hot takes going as far as launching it into space, as this viral video explores. But here's the problem. Rockets fail on a regular basis. They explode on the launch pad or on their way to orbit. One bad explosion could spray highly toxic plutonium across a huge swath of the planet. For one rocket, it's pretty low risk. Rockets are about 95% reliable, which means that one in 20 is gonna fail somehow. Pretty low risk? I'm sorry, one in 20 is low risk when it comes to rolling an 11 in Monopoly, but for not having a launch of radioactive waste into outer space explode into a plutonium rainstorm? Yeah, that's not a risk we're going to take. But the fact that this is even a discussion, and the fact that this video has 430,000 plus views, shows how difficult it is to find a good solution for storing nuclear waste. Ultimately, the nuclear energy sector expected to have a permanent storage solution from the get-go, so many experts agree that we have to figure out something other than leaving the nuclear waste on site. But when nobody wants the nuclear waste to reside near them, we end up having to actually have the conversation of launching it into space. Even if it is just a football field of waste, for one of the largest countries on Earth, it still remains a challenge. And nuclear energy does have some other challenges, too. For one, nuclear has become more expensive than energy sources like solar, wind, and natural gas in recent years. The actual cost of operating a nuclear power plant is pretty cheap, considering how much electricity a single plant produces. But actually building a plant is a huge upfront cost for nuclear energy. Nuclear energy also requires a huge amount of water, over three times that of natural gas, 25 times that of solar, and I can't even give you a number for wind, because wind doesn't really require any water. Because nuclear requires so much water, reactors are usually built next to water bodies, and often, the wastewater will be returned to the water body and affect the wildlife. There have even been reports of radioactive alligators. Seriously, I didn't think alligators could get any worse, but apparently they can. And now that I think about it, if radioactive alligators are a thing, maybe we shouldn't be putting all the nuclear waste in Jacksonville, Florida. None of this is to say we should write off everything that requires a lot of water, but it's also a valid concern. Now, I know what you're thinking. How have we gotten this far in and not discussed nuclear disasters? And it's a valid question. Nuclear disasters have really piqued the public interest, so much so that in 2019, the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear disaster was turned into a TV miniseries that received major critical acclaim. The Emmy for limited series goes to 
Chernobyl. It's a new day. It's a new Chernobyl received 19 nominations this year. Chernobyl, the little nuclear disaster that could. Pulling into the station with a caboose full of any gold. Wait, hold on. The little nuclear disaster that could? Are we supposed to be proud of one of the worst nuclear disasters in history for providing the topic of a cool miniseries? I mean, can you imagine if in 30 years we called Ida the little hurricane that could? Or Jamie Spears the little conservator that could? Come on, Hollywood, I feel like we're forgetting how bad this was. But with Chernobyl raking in Emmys in 2019, it would make sense that when we think of nuclear energy, we'd think of large-scale disasters with government cover-ups and uncounted casualties. No other nuclear disasters winning Emmys, so Chernobyl is now sort of the baseline. But Chernobyl in 1986, which is considered the worst nuclear disaster in history, is also the only nuclear accident that had radiation-related fatalities for commercial nuclear power, according to the World Nuclear Association. The UN Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation puts the death toll from Chernobyl at less than 100. Of course, many people were exposed to radiation that could have increased their risk of cancer or other health effects, so that number may turn out to be on the low side. But Three Mile Island had no deaths or injuries. The Fukushima disaster in 2011, where a tsunami in Japan disabled the cooling system in a nuclear disaster, led to many casualties as a result of the stressful evacuation, estimated between a few hundred and a couple thousand, but only one death attributable to radiation. And most other nuclear disaster deaths were back in the 50s and 60s, and in the United States, there really haven't been many fatal disasters. Certainly no recent ones. Of course, we shouldn't shrug off deaths because they're fewer than we expected, though. If you assumed everyone who ate death by chocolate cake died because it has the word death in it, and then found out only two people died from it in history, you should still be asking why people are dying because of chocolate cake. That said, we need to put this in context. According to Our World in Data, on average, 25 people die prematurely per terawatt hour from accidents and air pollution to produce coal, 18 to produce oil, 5 to produce biomass, and 3 to produce gas. Compare that to 0.02 for solar, 0.02 for hydro, 0.04 for wind, and and this is an overestimate accounting for not just deaths in the uranium mines and the few worker deaths during accidents, but the long-term radiation deaths from Chernobyl and evacuation deaths from Fukushima, 0.07 deaths per terawatt hour for nuclear. If you don't count those indirect deaths, nuclear may in fact be the safest energy source. So if we're concerned about safety, as I'm sure we all are, of course, we need to do everything possible to ensure a Chernobyl or a Fukushima never happens again, and we are doing that. But even with those disasters, nuclear energy has actually saved lives when you consider the alternative. By taking safety seriously with nuclear, safety has actually become a pro. So let's revisit the big money question. Is nuclear good or is nuclear bad? I wish I could give you a straight answer, but ultimately, it's a ridiculous question. 
If you remember back to our episode on electrification, there is no one single energy source that is perfect for our future. A lot of clean energy sources like geothermal are really expensive, hydroelectric dams create land disputes and issues for salmon as we've discussed before, and even solar and wind have their issues, despite becoming increasingly cheaper. That's why most experts argue we'd need not one energy source, but a charcuterie board of energy sources. Solar would be the burrata, wind is obviously the prosciutto, hydro would be the fig jam, and I think nuclear would be like a spicy salami, you know? It's hot, and we weren't good enough at high school chemistry to understand what's in it, but that certainly doesn't disqualify it from being on the charcuterie board. So I'll leave it up to you to decide how the pros and cons of nuclear stack up. But remember, the goal is to identify as many carbon-neutral energy options as possible, become more energy-efficient so we don't have to spend as much money on these energy options, and put together a portfolio where all these options can compete with each other and collectively power our future. Nuclear is not a yes-or-no question, but a case of how we can improve upon it to create the most viable option possible. So where do we start? Well, a lot of the issues, as you may have noticed, are pretty fixable, and largely have been improved upon or fixed already. We need safety standards in the uranium mines, and while I'm on that point, we at the very least should follow through on cleaning up the old mines in the Navajo Nation, and also be discussing what to do about that horrific history. We need to safely dispose of contaminated water, we need to do everything in our power to prevent nuclear disasters and have a clear emergency plan in case there is an accident. And by emergency plan, I don't mean make a miniseries and win 10 Emmys. We can even look at why nuclear has become more expensive. Some argue it's due to plants being decommissioned before the end of their life, meaning the huge upfront investment at the beginning didn't get the most bang for its buck. If that's the case, that can be fixed just by using existing reactors longer. Unless, of course, there's an issue like, you know, being on top of a fault line in California that makes continued use a bad idea. All of this is quite doable and should provide some optimism for nuclear energy's future. How about nuclear waste? Luckily, storing the waste in sealed dry storage on site will probably be viable for decades, so we have some time to figure out a long-term solution. At this point, one of the most agreed-upon solutions is hiding it deep underground in stable rock formations. That's where I always hid in Manhunt anyway, and I was unstoppable. Deep underground storage is already used commonly in many countries that generate nuclear energy, but the United States has yet to do it. We almost did create an underground repository, actually, at Yucca Mountain in Nevada, but the project faced a lot of controversy and ultimately hasn't happened. And according to Dairyland Power Cooperative's Brian Rood, it had nothing to do with the project being scientifically or technologically infeasible. Politics, not science or technology, has been the issue. And um, I think that's very frustrating that uh, we seem to be caught in this war uh, political war. Uh, first it was the anti-nuke advocates. Um, now it's a fight even between people that support nuclear energy. Some waiting for yucca, some wanting consolidated interim storage. Um, and clearly the failure to address the spent fuel issue hampers new development. Politics has impeded what Brian considers to be a scientifically and technologically feasible solution to nuclear waste. And that, understandably, can be frustrating. 
That's not to say Yucca Mountain has to be the solution. As he points out, there's other options, whether it be picking a different site or creating a new interim location to consolidate the waste as we give ourselves a little longer to procrastinate on picking that permanent storage solution. Because let's face it, Succession and Curb Your Enthusiasm are releasing new seasons at the same time, and that's a lot of must-see television. But whatever the solution may be, it has to be something. Not only is there a risk with leaving nuclear where it is for a long time, but according to Brian, this dilemma is actually hampering new nuclear development. If we want nuclear to be viable in our future energy portfolio, solving the waste issue may ultimately be the key. There is one more discussion when it comes to nuclear waste, and that is whether or not to reprocess fuel. Many countries, such as France and Japan, recycle spent fuel by separating out the plutonium and uranium, which can be reused in certain types of reactors when mixed with fresh uranium. About 4% of the byproducts from this process still end up as waste, so it's not going to eliminate the waste issue, but some argue it would be helpful. Surprisingly, though, not everyone is as gung-ho for recycling as Dwight Schrute on Earth Day. The big concerns with reprocessing have been the ease of nuclear proliferation and the cost. Because the separated plutonium is stored as a powder, it would theoretically be possible to steal and use to create a nuclear weapon, which can be done with just 20 pounds of plutonium. And reprocessing can be very expensive. The Department of Energy has estimated that it might cost up to $20 billion to build a reprocessing plant that could take in about 2,000 metric tons of waste per year. So our 80,000 plus metric tons of existing waste would run up quite the price tag. That's why the U.S. has, up to now, been against reprocessing spent fuel. But seeing as other countries have tried it, it may be worth evaluating if one approach works better than the other. And look. I get that nuclear energy is really scary. When we hear exaggerated takes on nuclear disasters all our lives, I get why many people might want to write nuclear off. But seeing how big the upside is in terms of climate, land use, and reliability, and how manageable and fixable the drawbacks with nuclear are, I absolutely think it's worth discussing these drawbacks and considering that nuclear energy could have a bright future ahead. Maybe even bright enough for the announcer of the Emmys to call it the little carbon-free energy source that could. Do you hate getting to your destination on time? If so, crosswalk buttons are for you. With crosswalk buttons, towns and cities can pretend to give walkers some power over people driving carbon-emitting cars, but actually just make walkers stand at street corners pressing buttons like a bunch of idiots! As if a person was any competition for a 3,000-pound piece of metal. Crosswalk buttons. Wait, how do I close this elevator? The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Jacopo Buongiorno, the TEPCO Professor of Nuclear Science and Engineering at MIT. Dr. Buongiorno, welcome to the show. Good morning, Ethan. Thanks for having me. From 2016 to 2018, you led the MIT study on the future of nuclear energy in a carbon-constrained world. What was this study about and what did it find? 
the study was uh, well it was about what the title says, really. So, what are the future prospects for nuclear energy in a world that seeks to decarbonize its uh, energy system? And um, the study entailed many different sort of facets of uh, nuclear energy. We started by trying to understand what is the value proposition of nuclear in a decarbonized world or in a carbon-constrained world, as we call it. What we found is that if governments and nations are serious about deeply decarbonizing the electric grid or, say, the transportation sector or manufacturing or buildings agriculture, et cetera, then energy sources that look like nuclear, which means are carbon-free and are dispatchable. That means you get the energy when you want it, not when the sun shines or the wind blows. Then having the uh, you know, nuclear or something that looks like nuclear is essential. Is essential to do what? Is essential to actually achieve those deep decarbonization targets and do so in a um, economically sustainable way as well as preserving the overall reliability of the system. So even a small share of nuclear in any of these sectors would really go a long way in ensuring that you have a reliable, relatively low cost and clean decarbonized system. That was the chief sort of um, a finding from that first part of the study. And then we looked at in great detail about what advanced nuclear technologies could help in the different sectors of the economy. And not surprisingly there, we found that, well, we have uh, several different technologies with different degrees of maturity, so they can become available uh, either within this decade or a little bit later, et cetera. But, but there is no fundamental impediment to the development of or to the deployment and adoption of uh, nuclear energy systems, new nuclear energy systems basically across all sectors of the economy. A third thing that we focus on was the regulatory process. So any new nuclear technology that comes to market will have to be licensed by an independent regulator in the United States is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And because these technologies in some uh, cases are radically different from the nuclear technologies that we're used to. Um, there is an obvious question of how long is it going to take and what is it going to take to license, to review and license these technologies. And so, and what we found is that the existing regulatory framework is adequate. There are some improvements that have to be made, and certainly there is a lot of, um, you know, knowledge base that has to be created for these new technologies uh, before they can be deployed at full scale commercially. So those are some of the highlights. So within the environmental world, I find nuclear energy to be one of the most hotly contested issues. A lot of people want it scaled up. A lot of people want it gone. Why do you think nuclear energy became controversial? And do you believe there lies an answer somewhere in between these extremes? It certainly does, as always, right? The extremes are almost never the, the right answer. So I personally think based on, you know, on the study that we just uh, talked about, as well as 20 years of experience, that we should really try to scale up. Going back to your question, why is nuclear so controversial? Well, it's a very long history, right? Uh, I mean, I think originally it goes back to the association of 
commercial nuclear power with military applications, whether it was, you know, nuclear weapons or uh, nuclear propulsion for submarines. And so that certainly did not help with the acceptance of the public. But ultimately, I think, you know, the opposition started or grew certainly back in the 60s and the 70s. And it was probably related in part also to the uh, rejection of big government programs. So it had nothing to do really with nuclear, but the fact that nuclear was perceived uh, right or wrong as a, uh, you know, government-driven program or technology as opposed to you know a private or, or more consumer-driven uh, technology that didn't help. There are a couple of issues that routinely come up about nuclear with stakeholders. Uh, one is safety. Another one is waste that have to be addressed. Now, in both cases, I think people typically tend to greatly overestimate the magnitude of these issues. The truth is that the safety record in the nuclear industry is extremely strong. Uh, certainly in the United States, but also, I would say, international accidents notwithstanding, uh, including Fukushima and Three Mile Island going back. Waste has been uh, a controversial issue forever. It's not a big technical problem. We have the volumes of uh, nuclear waste that have to be disposed of are very, very small. There are many different technical approaches that are safe and even low cost. It's always been a matter of uh, policy and politics, really, to find sites for repositories and manage that process in a way that you know local communities are comfortable with that technology. You mentioned nuclear's uh, safety record, which I actually find very interesting because there is this public idea that nuclear is very dangerous because we see these big disasters like Chernobyl or Fukushima. We also see it in pop culture and the media. But of course, compared to coal or other fossil fuels, nuclear is extremely safe. So how is nuclear as safe as it is? Because it does seem a little counterintuitive, but certainly the numbers are in favor. Yeah, you're, you're right. The, the numbers are certainly in favor. If you look at OSHA reportable accidents, so this is basically the safety of the workers, right? The, the nuclear workforce. One of the lowest uh, incident rate in the whole industry, in the whole economy, really exceptional focus on, on safety. The um, spectacular accidents, uh, a la Fukushima, Chernobyl and TMI, uh, certainly that's the root cause of, uh, you know, of the fear. In all cases, including Chernobyl, which was a very, very serious and awful accident, the uh, radiological consequences for the general public have been greatly exaggerated. I mean, as you said, the numbers really don't lie. It's pretty clear that the implications have been minimal there. But here, I think it's where the burden is on my own community and you know, on nuclear engineers and nuclear scientists, et cetera, is even if the public health consequences are low, I think it's up to my community to come up with designs that greatly reduce the uh, probability of having such accidents. And even if you have such accidents, the consequences have to be minimized in terms of you know, people evacuating. It's really a uh, you know very, very bad implication of an accident. Now, I will say that like all technologies, nuclear is evolving. And so we can talk about Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, and Fukushima with the awareness that we're talking about 1960s, 1970s technologies. And so the, the analogy that I often use is like cars, right? So yes, maybe we know someone that had an accident in 1960, Trabant, you know, East German car. And does that mean that we're not going to drive a 2021 Mercedes now because of the association? It's still cars, right? Yeah, but it's a very different technology. And the same, the same goes with nuclear. So the technology really has evolved 
and it's becoming more and more robust and tolerant of, of abnormal scenarios and therefore less prone to accidents. Nuclear waste is the other concern you mentioned, which I think a lot of people in the environmental world are very concerned about since not only is the waste hazardous, but we're running low on spots to put it. And it's kind of hard to envision what a solution to that issue looks like. So if we continue producing nuclear energy or scale it up, how do we store this waste safely and fairly? Yeah, so the starting point ought to be the realization that really the amount of material that we're talking about is minuscule, truly minuscule. So let me give you some numbers. If a person uh, were to use only nuclear electricity for his or her own life, you would produce the amount of high-level waste or radioactive waste that fits in a cup of coffee. I mean, that's it. That a cup of coffee volume would be your legacy in terms of nuclear waste. Then it stems from the fact that the energy density of uranium, which is the fuel that nuclear reactors use, is millions of times higher than the energy density of, say, natural gas or coal. So you don't need a lot of material to begin with, and therefore you don't get a lot of waste to end with, right? So the amounts are small. Now, those amounts being small and at the uh, level of uh, the United States, now, you know, you have to go, of course, beyond just one person. If you go at the level of the United States, what we have produced so far is 84,000 tons of high-level radioactive waste. That might sound like a big number, 84,000 tons. It is not. That material fits basically on a, on a football field. For a country like the United States that is drawing 20% of its electricity, from nuclear energy clean 24-7. So it's actually a very, very small amount. The industry knows how to handle. First, you put it in spent fuel pools, which are located at the uh, nuclear reactor site. And after a couple of years, when the material has cooled off, as we say, basically has given off a lot of its radioactivity, you move it into dry canisters, which are shielded and very, very safe and kind of dull. Uh, you just put them outside in a parking, I call it a fence parking lot. Really, that's what it is. It's just open air. And that canister is well sealed and well contained, but it only requires basically the atmospheric air to just uh, to just cool it. And there it can stay for decades. It's cheap and it's very, very benign. Ultimately, however, and this is where things get always complicated, ultimately, you want to put it underground. You got to do what we call permanent disposal. Okay. And so it has to go underground. The geology has to be right because according to regulations, you got to show that for, I don't know, 10,000 years or whatever, that the, the material is stable. And so that's where it gets a little bit controversial, not from a technical point of view, but mostly because you need to find sites that will accept that kind of legacy. Again, very, very uh, straightforward in terms of showing that things don't move around for that time scale. And so I'll give you a couple of examples, Finland and Sweden are the two countries, Finland in particular, that will open their permanent repository first worldwide. France maybe is going to be the third. So countries where that process of finding a site and then licensing and opening up has followed a uh, you know politically healthy trajectory, they have their repository and the problem is solved. In the US, purely for political reasons, we're still not at square one, but let's say square two or square three, where we have these materials in, in these dry canisters, but ultimately they have to be moved to a, to a central repository. To finish off, for our listeners, what advice would you give them in order to help approach this topic with some nuance and an open mind? Because I think a lot of people come in with some preconceived notions or some ideas that they already have about it. And 
I think, like you've said, this is really important to look at the numbers, look at the data and really think this through. So what would your message be? I like to think about this problem of decarbonization and climate change as a risk management game in a way. So think about it as either soccer or hockey, your favorite uh, team sports. You want to win the game. That's the ultimate objective. In order to win the game, you got to score goals. In order to score goals, you need to take shots on goals, right? I mean, the more shots on goal, the higher is the chance you're going to score. And if you score, you're going to win the game. So all of the above technologies means you're putting a lot of shots on goal, right? So if you want to win a game, you can't just take one shot on goal because chances are, you know, the keeper will, will save it and then you don't win the game. So here's the same thing. If you want to decarbonize, don't get stuck with the idea that, that we have a silver bullet. There is one solution and one technology that will solve the problem. No, there is a portfolio of technologies. And at this point, frankly, nobody knows what is the right mix of these technologies that will get you to the finish line. And so we cannot afford to discard any technologies. Nuclear is one such technology that we absolutely need to keep in that mix and push, and then we'll see. So that's prudent risk management. You want to win the game, all of the above, many shots on goal. Dr. Bongiorno, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. This wraps up episode 62 of The Sweaty Penguin. Remember, you can get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict. That helps boost us in their algorithms. You can also get a shout-out by joining our Patreon. And you'll get not just a shout-out, but merch, bonus content, even a chance to win a signed book from one of our experts. Head to patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin to unlock all that cool stuff and help grow the show. Once again, The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week. Today's episode was written by Caroline Kale, Ethan Brown, and Shannon Demiano, fact-checked by Megan Crimmins, and edited by Frank Hernandez. Our producers are Olivia Amate, Ethan Brown, Megan Crimmins, Shannon Demiano, Frank Hernandez, Dane Kim, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Sabrina Rawlings, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownies Central. Clips today came from American Experience, Democracy Now!, Fraser Kane, Television Academy, and CS Governments.